Um, we are doing this series called Anchored Down, and the, the idea of this series is that we have to have things that we anchor to. If you were, if you were out on the ocean and you had a boat um, and you wanted to stop your momentum, you would drop anchor. And you don't want to just drop anchor, you want to connect to something. You want that anchor to hook to something so that whenever wind or waves approach your vessel, that you're not being tossed around, that you can actually stay still for a little while. And, and one of the things we talked about last week is the idea that we must be anchored to God's Word. If God's Word isn't an anchor point in our life, then what is the point of Christianity? Because everything we do, everything we say, everything we believe is based off of God's Word. It's got to be based off of this. And if this isn't true, then what is it that we're doing? We're just basically having a club, but it's not life-changing if it's not true. And so we said last week we've got to be able to, to anchor into God's Word. I, I remember one time a friend of mine went to uh, Five Point South to, to witness to people, and he walked up to this lady, and he's trying to tell her about Jesus. The problem was she knew more of the Bible than he did. And she began to argue with him, and he had no response whatsoever. He had nothing he could say. And I remember the girl telling him, don't come back and talk to me about Jesus until you know more about the Bible than I do. Immediately, my buddy went home and started studying. Like He was just like in the Word of God, studying, trying to understand. Why? Because if we're not anchored to this, then, then all we're doing is believing a few good stories. We've got to be anchored to this. We've got to know this word. This word has to be in our heart and in our lives. It's got to be one of those things that affects everything that we do and think and believe. Well, today I've got another anchor point that I want to present to you, but I want to give you the reason why. I feel like last week, um, one of the things that I did not do is give you a really good reason on why we're doing these anchor points. Why is it that we have to have these? Why is it important to us? And, and, and I'm going to tell you one of the reasons is uh, Satan, that Satan has a scheme I believe if you were to look through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to see the story of God. I believe that. I believe you're going to see the character of God played out through every chapter and every verse all the way through. And some people may say, yeah, but, but God changes. And I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, God absolutely doesn't change. He, he doesn't change. But you can see his plan unfold in different ways all the way through the scriptures. The same can be said about Satan. The same can be said about the enemy of our souls, who is the devil. Why? Because he's got a plan and a scheme that, that is revealed in the book of Genesis that's also revealed in the book of Revelation, and it doesn't change very much throughout the entire book. As a matter of fact, from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the first thing Satan shows up on the scene and says is, Did God really say? Right from the beginning, one of his plans is to take the word of God and twist it and turn it and try to manipulate and deceive humanity with it. Right from the beginning, did God really say? Did God really say you can't eat from this plant? Like, did God really tell you that? He's always wanting you to question God's word. In the book of, in the book of Luke, whenever Satan shows up to talk to Jesus, one of the things that he does is he uses scripture to try to tempt Jesus which I think is hilarious. The Bible says in John 1 that, that Jesus is the word of God. So why in the world would you use the word to tempt the word? I don't understand, but that's just how Satan is. Why? He's stuck in this mode. He can't get out of it. He is a deceiver and a liar, and he tries to use good things, truthful things, to deceive us. And we fall right into it every time. 
In the book of Revelation, the Bible says that, that Satan uses the beast and gives him power. What kind of power? It's power that's similar to God's power. Just enough. Why? Because he wants to deceive the nations. From the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, Satan's plan is to deceive us. He will use truth to deceive us. He'll use God's word to deceive us. He'll use things that look good to deceive us. But he's always trying to deceive us. This is why we need anchor points in our life. Because we're going to be constantly bombarded with wind and waves of, of uh, satanic attack. And it doesn't always look like uh, a, a, a guy in red with horns and a pitchfork. If that were the case, it would be easy to avoid. Instead, Satan's always going to attack us with something that looks like truth. It's going to look like truth. It's going to look like common sense. In 2 Timothy, this is a passage I want you to, I want you to underline or highlight in your word today. 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3, verses 1 through 5, it says this. And you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will boast and be proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. This is the key part right here. Verse 5, check this out. It says, and they will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Skip down to verse 8, and it says, These teachers oppose the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith. A couple of things I want to point out is that they will be religious, but they'll reject the power that can get them to godliness. That's exactly where we live in today's world. All you got to do is look up uh, Christianity today. Start looking at, at what people really believe as far as Christian churches are concerned. And most of the time, or in a lot of cases, these Christian churches have a form of religion. They've got a form of godliness, but they deny all the power that can transform your life. We're all about having a form of godliness. I want a form of religion. I want to look like I know what I'm doing, but I don't want anything that smacks of life change and transformation. It says they have depraved minds and counterfeit faith. So the reason that I want to anchor down into a couple of points, the, the reason I want to do this is because I believe we're living in this world that Paul was writing to Timothy about. I believe we're living in a world today that is so progressive and so liberal that it's taking Christianity along with it to say that, hey, we, we want to, to have a form of godliness. We want to have a form of righteousness. We want to have a form of religion, but we don't want any of the power. And what happens is so many times Christians fall right into it. Because we say, yeah, that makes sense. It, it makes sense. Why, uh, why would a loving God ever send anybody to hell? So, so there probably shouldn't be hell, right? And so, so maybe there is no hell. And so we begin to fall into line with some of these belief systems because it's, it's where our culture has taken us. I read a, a statistic that bothered me. It's an old statistic. It's from 2008. And I'm sure today it's probably grown. But the statistic says this, 52% of Christians believe that there's more than one path to salvation. Let me, let me let you sink that in for just a minute. 52%. That means more than half of the people in this room that claim Christ 
would believe that He is not the only way to heaven. That there are many paths to God. As a matter of fact, one of the, one of the staples of, of the progression Christian movement right now is to say that, that although we believe in Christ's words, we believe that they are one of many paths to eternity. This is where we live today. And so if we're constantly being bombarded, we've got to have some things that we anchor to. So we want to anchor to God's word. But today's anchor point is this. I want to anchor to the point that Jesus is the only way. And I know for some of you guys, especially those of you that are traditional Christians, you're going to say, yeah, obviously he's the only way, Gabriel. Why are you teaching us this? I'm teaching you this because the idea that he's not the only way... Listen, it's neat to understand whenever I put it as a stat on the screen. It's neat to say, well, that's just the progressive Christians. It's neat to say, well, that's just in our world somewhere out there. But whenever I tell you that I've literally had to have conversations with people in this building that say Jesus may not be the only way. Not people, not people that are from the outside looking in. I'm talking about people from the inside with us. And so I want to tell you today, we've got to have this anchor point that Jesus is the only way. Because if this isn't an anchor point for our life, then listen, your Christianity is worth nothing. So let's see what the Bible has to say. Jesus himself says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Let me repeat that for a second. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Later on, Jesus would say, I am the door. Part of the reason we've got the word gateway in our name is because there's another version that says, I am the gateway. And he says, you can only get to God through me. I'm the only way. Jesus makes his claim about himself, and we're going to go through some of the proofs as to why he can claim this, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But we need to understand what does it mean for him to be the way, the truth, and the life today. He, if, when he says he is the way, what that means is he is the path. He is the action that we take, right? He is the lifestyle, not just the life, but the lifestyle. That's what the way means. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it says this, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering. That word suffering there also could be translated as death. Just as Christ suffered for you, he is your example. You must follow in his steps. There's no other way. You can't go through Buddha's way to get to heaven, right? He is the only way. Jesus is the only way. We can't go through some kind of, uh, of mental manipulation to be able to get to heaven. We, we have to only go through Jesus. And it's not just going through Jesus. It's living like Jesus. He says, he is your example. You must follow his steps. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says this, So all of us... So all of us who have um, had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of God. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him. Talking about Jesus as we are changed into His glorious image. So Peter says, you got to live like Him. Paul says, you got to be changed to be more like Him. And then John says in 1 John 2.6, Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. 
This idea that Jesus is the way is a powerful truth that we have to build our life on. It's not about being like somebody else. It's not about being like another good person. It's not about being like Martin Luther King Jr. or Abraham Lincoln. It's not about being like Gabriel Wright. It's about being like Jesus. And he is the way to get to God. He is also the truth. John 1, uh, 1 through 4 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the Word incarnate. Jesus is truth. Everything He says is truth. Everything he does is truth. And we need to have some kind of absolute truth in our life that we can build our life on. But what the world wants to tell you today is that there is no absolute truth, that truth is relative, that each of us have our own truth and we need to live our truth out. Can I tell you what Jesus says? Jesus says it's not about your truth, it's about him being truth and we live like him. So the truth I live out is not my truth, the truth I live out is his truth. I want to live like Jesus. I don't want to live like me. I don't like my truth. My truth gets me in trouble, right? My truth can get me in a whole world of hurt. And so it's not about living like my truth. It's about living out his truth. I listened to a preacher the other day, and one of the things he said was, is he talked about how truth is so so fluid and how how the Holy Spirit is here to to unveil more truth to you. Can I tell you the Holy Spirit isn't here to unveil new truth to you? He's here to show you the truth, which is Jesus Christ. The Bible says he will reveal all things and he will glorify Jesus, not glorify you. But this preacher says, listen, it's all about living your truth and whatever your truth is, is what's good for you. And if you would just allow your truth to shine through, can I tell you something today? Your truth will send you to hell. People say, well, how can a loving God send anybody to hell? He won't. God won't send anybody to hell. As a matter of fact, hell wasn't created for you. It was created for Satan and his devils, right? That's what the Bible says. So it's not about God sending you to hell. Let me tell you what's going to send you to hell. You and I will send ourselves to hell. By our constant disobedience to the Father and our disability to live according to His truth and try to always live according to our truth. The other thing that the Bible says is, I am the life. Jesus says, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Jesus says that I am the resurrection and the life. Even though someone would die if they believe in me, they will live again. Jesus conquered death by being raised from the dead. And he is our life for us. So let's talk for just a second about the proof that Jesus claims that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. How can he say that? Let me, give you, let me give you five things that I believe are good proofs for Jesus, all right? The first proof is this. The proof is his power. The proof is his power. If you'll notice the miracles that are recorded in God's word that Jesus performs, they're, they're actual miracles. They're not concoctions or tricks. As a matter of fact, a lot of people like to point to a guy named Apollonius of Tyna. Anybody ever heard of him? No, I didn't think so. You don't need to. He's, he's a weird dude. 
As a matter of fact, this guy Apollonius came after Christ, and, and a lot of people tried to, um, especially skeptics and atheists nowadays, they try to use this guy Apollonius to, to say that Jesus is a myth built on the life of Apollonius, but what's weird is that Apollonius came later. So it's hard to build a myth on someone that came later. But they don't want to say that part, right? And one of the things they talk about is all the, the miracles that Apollonius committed or did during his time frame of living. But whenever you go through and you begin to read the works of Apollonius, there's actual books, a book written about his life. When you go through and read them, one of the things you'll notice is a lot of what he did was not miracles. A lot of what he did was medicine or concoctions. Or paraphernalia, like he would come up with stuff and, and, and try to and try to say, well, if you drink this this drink and put this leaf in it and 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 burn this incense around you, then something's going to happen. But if you'll notice in the life of Christ, his miracles were done with straight power. He didn't need tricks. He didn't need different angles of light. He didn't need smoke and mirrors. He just needed the power of God operating in him and through him. No tricks. No special sacrifices, no remedies, no concoctions, just straight power. Jesus was a man of power. The other thing we talked about last week is his prophecy. So his power proves him, his prophecy proves him. And and I'm not going to get into all this, but we talked about how last week he fulfilled over 400 Old Testament prophecies. And and we said that the odds of just committing, of just proving uh, or living out eight of those prophecies was, was one... Um, out of 10 to the 17th power. And we talked about how impossible it was for him just to do eight of them, and he did 400 of those prophecies. The third, the third th- proof that Jesus has is his message or his plan of salvation. This is totally different than anybody else. Um, every other person, every other Messiah, every other person that, that has come along to try to claim um, salvation or try to, try to provide a way for us has always been works-based first. Jesus is the only one that showed up and said, it's not about your works. It's about my grace. It's about my love. It's about my faithfulness, not just about yours. As a matter of fact, he's the only one that showed up on the scene and sacrificed himself on purpose. 1 John 2, 2, he said he himself is a sacrifice that atones for our sins. It's not only our sins, but the sins of the world. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. This is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. I remember one time being in another country and talking to a, a young man who was, uh, who was Muslim. And, and as I began to talk to this guy about Christ and I began to talk to him about, about religion, and one of the things um, we, we talked about was, how is it that you find yourself making it to eternity? I said, how, what is it that you have to do? Because I know what I have to do. I have to believe and I have to repent. But, but those are really simple compared to what you have to do. What is it that you have to do? And I remember him telling me about a weight on his shoulders. He said, it's like I have a, 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 a good spirit and an evil spirit, an angel and a demon. And he said, he said, the more I feed the angel, the closer I get to making it to heaven. But the more I feed the demon, the further away from God I get. It was all based on his works. Can you imagine living a lifestyle where you're constantly trying to measure every single work that you do to see if you're adding up enough to get to heaven? 
Can you imagine the pressure and the stress that it would take to live that kind of lifestyle out? This guy was constantly under pressure, never knowing if he had done quite enough to make it into heaven. Jesus is the only one. He's the only one that shows up on the scene and says, listen, it's not about your sacrifice. It's not about your goodness. It's about my sacrifice, and it's about my goodness, and I will give myself up for you. That proves that Jesus is the only way. The fourth point is this, his perfection. The Bible says he's the only one that lived a sinless life. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Even Pilate couldn't find. The Bible says that Pilate washed his hands of Jesus whenever they're crucifying him. says, I find no guilt in this guy. Even the people that were trying to kill him couldn't find guilt in him. Jesus lived a perfect life. And the fifth thing is this. And this is where we'll end today. You guys are going to really enjoy me preaching sick, right? So far, it's been very short messages. I was like, yeah. Hope he gets sick tomorrow. Um, The fifth thing is this, the empty tomb. The empty tomb. Now, this is important. Why is it important to have an empty tomb? It's important. Is it important to have the cross? Absolutely important to have the cross. But listen, a lot of people died on crosses. Peter died on a cross. It doesn't make Peter the Savior, right? Peter's not special because he dies on a cross. A lot of people died on a cross in those days. So that doesn't make Jesus necessarily special. It was his sacrifice, the heart behind it, that matters. But the empty tomb is what really makes the difference because nobody else has an empty tomb. Nobody else gets an empty tomb except for Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, listen to how strong. Now, now to prove the empty tomb, some of you guys are going to say, well, you can't. How do you prove the empty tomb when we can't be there? Like, obviously it's empty. Um, How do we prove that? I just want you to listen to the strength and what Paul says about his belief system. Check this out. Because listen, if Paul didn't believe this, if Paul didn't believe this, there's got to be a reason he's going to believe this. Paul's not just believing some myth about Jesus. It says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 and 17. It says, If Christ had not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. If Christ had not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. One of the things, even some of the greatest skeptics in the world and the atheists in the world, one of the things they talk about is they try to poke holes in everything Jesus did. But one of the things they struggle to poke holes in is the idea of the empty tomb. Part of the reason they struggle to poke holes in it is because they look at the disciples who died for their belief in the empty tomb. They were not willing to give up even an inch on Christ not being raised from the dead. They died terrible deaths. Taking that thought and that faith to their grave. In Matthew chapter 28, we get a little more proof. And if you just have like a little bit of common sense, you'll get this. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. So in other words, the women had gone in, they had seen that the tomb was empty, and the the women went out to tell other people. One of the proofs that I I was, as I was studying, I came across that I thought was interesting, I didn't put it in my notes, 
but it is the fact that the Bible uses women as witnesses. Now, you and I may not think that's anything wrong with that today, but back in those days, women's, uh, women's testimony didn't count for much. A woman's testimony didn't count for much. And the fact that Christianity would hinge one of their greatest beliefs, the empty tomb, on a woman's testimony, shows you that it wasn't just a fabricated story, that they were willing to hang it on even that. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priest what had happened. A meeting with the elders was called, and they decided to give the, stories, uh, give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, you must say Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping and stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you won't get in trouble. So the guards accepted the bribe and said that they were told what, what, they, said what they were told to say. And the story spread widely among Jews, and they still tell it today. Okay, here's where common sense comes into play. Why would you tell somebody to fabricate a story about someone stealing a body if the body was still in the tomb? Think about it for a second. If, if I were to say, I've got this water bottle up here, and I'm going to try to get Jim to tell everybody that he stole my water bottle... Nobody would believe that story if you can just look up here and see there's the water bottle. Nobody's going to believe the soldier's story. Nobody's going to care that there is a story if all they got to do is go to the grave and look. It wasn't like they were trying to hide the grave. As a matter of fact, the Bible says it was a, a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, that took Jesus in. He wasn't buried in a ditch somewhere. He was in a physical tomb with a physical cover over it. Why? Because that way we can go physically check and see if he was in there. If they would have just thrown him into a mass grave in a ditch, who knows if the story was true or not. But the fact is he was in a tomb. And then all of a sudden, he wasn't there anymore. And the Jews had to come up with a story to account for the fact that there was no body in the tomb. So they get people to lie for them. How do I know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? I know he is. Not just because he said so. He proved it by his power. He proved it through prophecy. He proved it through his plan of salvation. He proved it through a perfect life. He proved it through an empty tomb. So the question we have to ask ourselves today is, is Jesus the only way? And I know right off the bat, we're going to sit out here in the, in the crowd and, and we're all Christians and we're all, you know, we love the Lord. And we say, well, of course, he's the only way. But my question to you today, maybe even you watching on, online today, my question is this. Is he really the only way? Sure, you're not going to believe in Buddha. Sure, you're not going to believe in Islam. I, I, I gotcha. I gotcha. And I know there may be some of you that kind of waffle because you're saying, I, I just don't understand. What, what, about, what about these, um, these Muslims that live in, in Iran and how can they ever know? Can I tell you something? God has a plan for everybody. God's got a plan to reveal himself. The Bible says that if you seek me, you will find me. He does not make that promise just to Jews or just to Christians. That promise is to the entire world. If you seek me, you will find me. 
We've read testimonies, and I've watched, um, I've watched documentaries right now, uh, and I've shared this before, but, but uh, of, of people in, in other countries, especially Iran, there's a huge underground Christian movement happening right now in Iran. Tons and tons of people are giving their hearts to Jesus Christ without ever hearing the message. Instead, they're having dreams about Jesus. And as they're having these dreams about Jesus, all of a sudden they will meet an underground Christian, a secret Christian. And that Christian, all they have to say is the word Jesus. They just say the name Jesus. And these people are falling on their hands and feet, weeping, crying out to God. Because they've heard the message of the gospel even in their dreams. God's got a plan for everybody to find Jesus. So you and I can't all of a sudden begin to back up on our anchor. We can't start pulling up anchor in Jesus being the only way just because we don't know how the message is going to get out there. We just need to know that the message will get out there. That should also push us and pressure us into reaching the lost. Someone's got to spread the message. It's not my job to be the only one. It's our job. The Bible says it's the work of the pastor to encourage the people to do the work of the ministry. It's your job to spread the message of Jesus Christ, that he is the only way. We can't get mad at God if people die without knowing. We have a responsibility to spread the gospel. But my question is this. Is he your truth? Is he your way? Is he your life? Is the only way not your money, not your job, not your security, not your church attendance, not your relationships. It's got to be Jesus. One of the things you can stand up with me today, one of the things we were talking about before church today as we were praying is I, I told the worship team, I said, I feel, like, I feel like nowadays we've gotten to this place in life as Christians that so many other things end up becoming our salvation. Christianity has become way more than Jesus. Christianity has become about our church, right? We think church is what Christianity is. Listen, this is not, this isn't Christianity. This is a building. It's a group of people gathered together, but this isn't Christianity. We think it's about our our fight and our justice and what we're pursuing. No, 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 no. It's not about your pursuits. That's not Christianity. It's not about your security. It's not about how much money you've got in the bank. Do we all want more money in the bank? Absolutely. Do we all want to be able to retire one day? I'm sure we do. But when that becomes the focus of my worship, when everything I do in Christianity is all about getting a blessing and not about being a blessing, then I've missed it. We sing a song today, and this is how I want to close out the service. I don't want to do a normal closeout. We're going to do something weird and different. How many of you like to do something weird every so often? Yes, nobody raised their hand. <laughs> so, so here's what the Bible says. We know this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. We quote this all the time. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And that makes us feel really good. And we typically stop right there. But there's a verse 12. Can you believe it? There are more verses in the Bible than just Jeremiah 29 11. I know it blew my mind too. Here's what it says. It says, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. 
And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity and I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Let me tell you something. When we seek God, when we pursue Him with everything that we've got, when we make Jesus the only way, and it's not about all my stuff, and it's not about all my activities, and it's not about my kids, and it's not about my spouse, and it's not about my job, and it's not about my church, and it's not about my social status, and it's not about how many followers I've got. When it's all about Jesus, and only about Jesus, when He is my way, my truth, and my life, when everything I have is anchored to Him and Him alone. The Bible says that he shows up in your life. He shows up in your life. And he begins to bring you back from all those places where you felt captive. All those times when you felt alone. All those times when you were hurt and you were sick and you were broken. And he begins to draw you back to a place of peace. To a place of home. To a place of family with him and him alone. So here's how we're going to end the message today. Bobby's going to come up in a few minutes and he's going to dismiss you and he's going to pray and it's going to be wonderful. But we're going to sing one more song. And as we sing this song, here's all I want you to do. If you say, Gabriel, I've got some areas in my life where maybe Jesus isn't my only way. He isn't my only truth. He isn't my only life. Sure, it's not about Buddha and Muhammad, and it's not about, you know, being a Hindu, and it's not, it's not about all that stuff. I get that. I know that's not where you're living, but maybe you've allowed some other things in your life today. Maybe there's some other things in your life today that have, that have gotten in the way. And you say, you know what I want to do today? I just want to go after him with everything that I've got. I just want to give him everything that I've got. I just want to seek him, and I want to find him, and I want him to find me. If that's you this morning, as we sing this song, here's all I want you to do. Nobody's going to pray for you. Nobody's going to do anything to you. I want you to slip out of your seat. And I just want you to come down to the front and just sing this song as your prayer to God. Bobby will give us a few minutes and then he'll come up and dismiss you.